Chapter Six, Part Two, of Margaret Sanger, by Margaret Sanger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six, Part Two, Fanatics of Their Pure Ideals. I continued assiduously to write pieces for the call. One of these reported the laundry strike in New York City in the winter of 1912, unauthorized by Samuel Gompers and his American Federation of Labor, which claimed it alone had the right to declare strikes. To get the details, I went into the houses of the Irish Amazons, who with their husbands had walked out without being called out simply because they could not stand it any longer. They were the hardest worked, the poorest paid, had the most protracted and irregular hours of any union members. One man described his typical day. He rose at five, had ten minutes for lunch, less for supper, and dragged himself home at eleven at night. I was glad they had the courage to rebel, and it took courage to be a picket, getting up so early on bitterly cold mornings and waiting and waiting to waylay the strike-breakers and argue with them. The police were ready to pounce when the boss pointed out the ringleaders. This was the only time I came in contact with men and women on strike together. I could see the men had two things in their minds, one economic, the two-dollar extra wage, and the shorter hours they might win, the other political, the coming of the social revolution. The woman really cared for neither of these. Dominating each was the relationship between her husband, her children, and herself. She might complain of being tired and not having enough money, but always she connected both with too many offspring. Some of the strikers thought I might help them out, but I was not at all sure I believed either in direct action or legislation as a remedy for their difficulties. This lack of conviction prevented me from having the necessary force to aid them organize themselves, and in such an emergency a forceful leader was called for. The night of their rally, I was amazed at the complete confusion. Anybody could speak and was doing so. I felt helpless in the midst of this chaos and distressed at their helplessness. But I knew the person who could manage the situation effectively, and so I sent for Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, a direct actionist identified with the IWW. Her father, Tom Flynn, a labor organizer, was the same type of philosophical rebel as my father, long on conversation but short on work. Elizabeth had been out in the logging camps of the West, where she had won the complete adoration of the lumberjacks. At her tongue's end were the words and phrases they understood, and she knew exactly the right note to stir them. Elizabeth stood on the platform, dramatically beautiful with her black hair and deep blue eyes, her cream-white complexion set off by the flaming scarf she always wore about her throat. Nothing if not outspoken, 
She started by saying it was folly for the strikers to give up their bread and butter by walking out. They could achieve their ends more quickly if they threw hypothetical sabots into the machinery. If a shirt comes in from a man who wears size 15, send him back an 18. Replace a dress shirt with a blue denim. That's what the laundry workers of France did and brought the employers to their knees. The audience was being held spellbound by this instruction in the fine art of sabotage when some of Gomper's strong-arm men appeared, and the battle was on. They tramped up on the stage, moved furniture and chairs about, made so much noise Elizabeth's voice could not be heard, and finally ejected some of her sympathizers. It was probably better in the end that the American Federation of Labor eventually took the laundry workers under its wing, because the IWW was not an organized body, but merely an agitational force which scarcely had the necessary strength to lead a successful strike in New York City. Its influence in Lawrence, Massachusetts, was far more potent. Joe Ettore, once bootblack in California, with Arturo Giovanniti, scholar, idealist, poet, and editor of Il Proletario, had been stirring up the unorganized textile strikers with impassioned eloquence. So compelling were the words of these two that workers of seven nationalities, chiefly Italian, had walked out spontaneously. The accidental shooting of a girl picket provided an excuse, far-fetched as it may seem, to jail the firebrands, Etor and Giovanetti, who were charged with being accessories before the fact, which meant they were accused of having known beforehand she was going to be shot by the police, and were therefore responsible. Now the strikers had martyrs, and the IWW heroes of the West poured in to help. Bill Hayward, William E. Troutman of the United Brewery Workers, Carlo Tresca, editor and owner of an Italian paper in New York, contributed to put on the biggest show the East had ever seen, parades, banners, songs, speeches. The entire Italian population of America was aroused. These were then a people unto themselves. For much longer than the two generations customary among other immigrant races, they retained their habits, traditions, and language, ate their own type of food, and read their own newspapers. Italians in New York, who were in accord with the strikers, decided on a step, novel in this country, although it had been tried in Italy and Belgium. The primary reason for the failure of all labor rebellions was the hunger cries of the babies. If they were only fed, the strikers could usually last out. It was determined to bring the children of the textile workers to New York, where they could be taken care of until the issue was settled. This resolution was made without knowing how many there might be. Provision would be forthcoming somehow. Again, because I was an American, a nurse, 
and reputed to be sympathetic to their cause and the cause of children, the committee asked me, with John D. Gregorio and Carrie Giovanetti, to fetch the youngsters. As soon as I agreed, telephone calls were put through to Lawrence, and a delegate took the midnight train to make the preliminary arrangements. We found the boys and girls gathered in a Lawrence public hall, and before we started, I insisted on physical examinations for contagious diseases. One, though ill with diphtheria, had been working up to the time of the strike. Almost all had adenoids and enlarged tonsils. Each, without exception, was incredibly emaciated. Our hundred and nineteen charges were of every age, from babies of two or three to older ones of twelve to thirteen. Although the latter had been employed in the textile mills, their garments were simply worn to shreds. Not a child had on any woolen clothing whatsoever, and only four wore overcoats. Never in all my nursing in the slums had I seen children in so ragged and deplorable a condition. The February weather was bitter, and we had to run them to the station. There the parents, with tears in their eyes and gratitude in their hearts, relinquished their shivering offspring. The wind was even icier when we reached Boston, and money was scarce. I had only enough for railroad fares and none for chartering buses or hiring taxis. Consequently, again, we had to scurry on foot from the north to the south station. But once more on the train, great was the enthusiasm of the boys and girls, who entertained themselves by singing the Marseillaise and the Internationale. All knew the words as well as the tunes, though the former might be in Polish, Hungarian, French, German, Italian, and even English. The children who sang those songs are now grown up. I wonder how they regard the present state of the world. As we neared New York, I began to worry about our arrival. We were all weary. Would preparations have been made to feed this hungry mob and house it for the night? But I should have trusted the deep feeling and the dramatic instinct of the Italians. Thousands of men and women were waiting. As my assistants and I left the train, looking like three pied pipers followed by our ragged cohorts, the crowd pushed through the police lines, leapt the ropes, caught up the children as they came, and hoisted them to their shoulders. I was seized by both arms, and I, too, had the illusion of being swept from the ground. The committee had secured permission to parade to Webster Hall, near Union Square. Our tired feet fell into the rhythm of the band. As we swung along, singing, laughing, crying, big banners bellying and torches flaring, Sidewalk throngs shouted and whistled and applauded. At Webster Hall, supper was ready in plentiful quantity. Many of our small guests were so unused to sitting at table that they did not know how to behave. Like shy animals, they tried to take cover, carrying their plates to a chair, a box, anything handy. Almost all snatched at their food with both fists and stuffed it down. They were so hungry. 
Socialists had not initiated this fight, but they were in it. Many had come to offer shelter for the duration of the strike, perhaps six weeks, perhaps six months, perhaps a year, with visions in their minds of beautiful, starry-eyed, helpless little ones. Instead, they were presented with bedraggled urchins, many of whom had never seen a toothbrush. But they rallied round magnificently. I cannot speak too highly of them. It was a responsibility to apportion the children properly, but I had willing and intelligent help. The Poles had sent a Polish delegate, the French had sent a French delegate, and so on, in order that all might be placed in homes where they could be understood. Luckily, several families were willing to take more than one child, so that we were usually able to keep brother and sister together. Each, before it was handed over, was given a medical examination. The temporary foster parents had to promise to write the real parents, and also to send a weekly report to the committee of how their charges were getting on. The tabulation was thorough, and not until four in the morning did the last of us go to bed. The next week, ninety-two more children were brought down. But I had no part in this, because I was on a case. Hysteria had now risen to such a height that some of the parents at the Lawrence station were beaten and arrested by the police. Victor Berger of Wisconsin, the only socialist member of Congress, asked for an investigation of circumstances leading up to the walkout. Although I had not been identified with it, he requested me to be present at the hearings. When Gompers testified, he literally shook with rage, and it seemed to me he was about to have apoplexy. The mill owners charged that the whole affair had been staged solely for notoriety, and that the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children should step in. Unfortunately, the witnesses for the strikers were not well documented. When it was obvious that the Congressional Committee was not receiving the correct impression, Berger asked me to take the stand and describe the condition of the children as I had seen them. Writing up statistics on hospital reports had given me the habit of classification. I was able from my brief notes to answer every question as to their nationalities, their ages, their weights, the number of those without underclothes and without overcoats. Senator Warren Gamaliel Harding led the inquiry, and I could see he was in sympathy with my vehement replies. The publicity had been so well managed by the Italians and their leaders that popular opinion turned in favor of the strikers, and they eventually won. At the end of March, the little refugees, who had endeared themselves to their foster parents, went back to the mill district. It was hard to recognize the same children of six weeks before, plumped up and dressed in new clothes. In November, Ettore and Giovanetti were acquitted. The Patterson silk strike of the next year, in which the workers were again predominantly Italian, may have been as important as the one at Lawrence, but it was by no means so obviously dramatic. Patterson was a gloomy city, 
and as a river the Passaic was sadder than the Merrimack. Though the leadership was far more cohesive, caution was evidenced on every hand. Its chief interest to me lay in Bill Hayward's participation. At Lawrence, he had only been one of the committee, whereas at Patterson, he was in charge for the first time in the East. Always before, he had advised strikers to take it on the chin and not be too gentle in hitting back. But here, before 10,000 crowding up to the rostrum, I heard him warn, Keep your hands in your pockets, men, and nobody can say you are shooting. An American was apt to be at a disadvantage in handling foreigners, particularly when they felt aggrieved. They objected to his manner of going about things, so different from their own, and he, on the other hand, could not fully understand their psychology and had the added obstacle of being compelled to work through an intermediary in language. At Patterson, the Italian groups were not behind Bill. As soon as he began to temper his language and sound a more wary note of advice, his once faithful adherents repudiated him. His clarion call of hands in the pockets which was intended to create favorable popular opinion by proving them good boys, had actually tied their hands, and detectives beat and bullied them just the same. The public was not impressed, and they were resentful. They claimed he did not have the old fighting spirit he had shown when directing the miners of the West. He was getting soft. He was a sick man. Although he had actually progressed tactically and left them where they were, from that time on he lost his power of leadership. Following the method which had been so successful at Lawrence, Jack Reed endeavored to dramatize direct action in an enormous pageant at Madison Square Garden. He even had pallbearers carry an actual coffin into the hall, to pictorialize the funeral of a worker who had been shot at Patterson. I could feel a tremor go through the audience, but on the whole, conviction was lacking. The pageant was a fitting conclusion to one period of my life. I believe that we all had our parts to play. Some had important ones. Some were there to lend support to a scene. Some were merely voices off stage. Each whatever his role was essential. I only walked on, but it had its influence in my future. No matter to what degree I might participate in strikes, I always came back to the idea, which was beginning to obsess me, that something more was needed to assuage the condition of the very poor. It was both absurd and futile, to struggle over pennies when fast-coming babies required dollars to feed them. I was thoroughly despondent after the Patterson debacle and had a sickening feeling that there was to be no end. It seemed to me the whole question of strikes for higher wages was based on man's economic need of supporting his family and that this was a shallow principle upon which to found a new civilization. Furthermore, 
I was enough of a feminist to resent the fact that woman and her requirements were not being taken into account in reconstructing this new world about which all were talking. They were failing to consider the quality of life itself. End of chapter 6, part 2